Welcome to Wadcast. I'm Charlene Gianetti, editor of Woman Around Town. After her son Isaac died, Eve Goldberg set out to create the type of substance-free community that might have saved his life. What Isaac needed was a safe and comfortable place where he could socialize with other young adults without having anyone using alcohol or drugs. The result is Big Vision, a warm and welcoming space that makes it possible for young people to have a good time enjoying fun activities while they forge new friendships. The number of young people coming to Big Vision events has grown, with more organizations and individuals getting involved. We're privileged to have Eve here today to tell us more about Big Vision. Thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm really excited to talk with you about Big Vision. Thank you for having me. Let's start with Isaac. Can you tell us about your son, what he was like as a young boy, what, what he was like growing up? Sure. So Isaac was, from a very young age, he was just always the sweetest child. I mean, he was just cute and fun, and he was the kind of kid that, you know, parents would always call me after a play date and tell me how well behaved he was and just what a cutie he was and you know he was just a normal little kid um when he started going to school they noticed at a very young age that he had learning issues so even when he was like in pre-k or kindergarten it already they were already seeing things and i remember at the time thinking that they were crazy that they can pick it up so early before he was even reading but they were they were right on the money and he he had learning issues so um, we had to put him into um, a special school for kids who had uh, learning issues and that was always it was always tough for him because we had to like take him out of his, the school that he was in where he had established friends and and he was you know he always felt it made him a little bit insecure and he always felt a little less than his other friends, you know. So so that he started having challenges, you know, certain learning issues and he had OCD and he had different, just a, a lot of different little issues. But he was, he was just a, a regular kid, very, you know, very athletic, uh, funny, you know, sweet, sweet boy. Um, as we, you know, he went through school, it, he, he really improved and he was doing very well. He was star of his basketball team in middle school and then in high school. He, he was even on the varsity, um, like as a ninth grader and, you know, really well liked by everybody and doing extremely well. And he started um, getting into, it just, drinking a little bit, smoking pot when he was in high school. And I remember he actually, the first time he ever smoked pot, he came home and he, he told me everything. He was very open and very talkative and I was a single mom and so he just told me everything that was going on. And I remember he said to me, Mom, you know, I was at my friend's apartment today and I smoked pot for the first time. And he said, and I hated the way it made me feel. I felt really paranoid and we were on his terrace and I thought that I, I was going to fall off. He said, I'm never going to do it again. And I remember thinking to myself, thank God, you know, this is great. You know, I have this kid. He's not, not going to have any issues. 
So well, I was obviously way off on that, but um, so so that that's kind of whatever. He was really he was always like I said, cute, good looking, really good looking, tall, athletic, sweet, compassionate, like. Um, just one one story that I actually told at his funeral, which was kind of you know funny, but it really it said everything about Isaac. So when Isaac was turning twenty one, he was in college, and he you know said, "I said, what do you want for your birthday?" And he said, "I have these two friends, and they've never been on vacation in their lives." He said, "And I want to take them away with me on vacation." So I said, okay, you know, let me do the research. He went to school in Rhode Island, and there were these two boys from a small town in Rhode Island. And neither of them had passports, and neither of them had ever been on a plane. And anyway, we finally were able to find a place that they can go to that was, they didn't need a passport. And uh, I remember he came home from school with the two of them, and I just looked at them, and it, they were like country bumpkins. You know, Isaac was a city boy, and these two boys had never been, they came up, we live in an apartment on the third floor, they came up in the elevator, and they had never been in an apartment in their life. They thought they were in a hotel. Like, they were so, it was really comical, you know, because Isaac was just like, you know, grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. He was like this, you know, sort of, sophisticated in a way, you know, kid growing up in New York City, and he picked these two boys that were like, came into New York City like deer in the headlights, clueless, you know, and these are the boys that he wanted to take with him, you know, on this vacation for his 21st birthday. And it just like said everything about Isaac, you know, and mm-hmm. I was like, well, I, I know he's going to be the chick magnet, you know, on this trip, and that was, you know, he was just this, anyway, that, that kind of, that kind of said, who Isaac was. So, so he thought about other people and he was very generous, obviously, Eve, very sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. Very sensitive, very generous, and very, never cared about what was on the outside. He saw people for who they were on the inside. You know, he, he was always careful never to speak, you know, badly about people. He had been a chubby kid when he was, like, in his like young, when, you know, when he was 10, 11, 12, he was kind of chubby. So he was always sensitive to other people who may have had weight issues or whatever it was. He would get upset with me if I ever made a comment on the street about somebody that I saw. You know, he was, mm. he just, he kind of always saw what was on the inside and on the outside. He was, he was just incredible in that way. He was just really, you know, kind and loving and compassionate. Yeah, he obviously had a big heart. So he did. Did, did you suspect that he was uh, using drugs at all? Well, when when he was in his uh, like junior year in high school, like I said, he was a great basketball player, and his goal was to play Division three basketball. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he was on the varsity, and I started seeing signs of. You know, when he was, he was also smoking cigarettes. I know at, he started smoking you know, towards the end of his junior year. And I saw he was kind of winded on the court. And he w- just wasn't himself. Like, I started seeing signs, and he started complaining about not feeling well. And I, I'm really even not sure at that point what it was. I took him to so many different doctors to see see how, you know, to, to try and help him out. He, um, 
went on like anti-anxiety medication because he had a lot of, you know, a lot of anxieties. And, um, and then, you know, he also had, you know, some, um, you know, attention issues. And so you know, they had, I really avoided putting him on any medication for mm. years. But when he was in his, in high school, you know, they put him, I think they put him on Ritalin first. And that was kind of the beginning mm-hmm. of, of the issue and smoking pot. And I always thought that, oh, he's on the team, you know, he's on a basketball team. These kids, you know, are only going to live healthy lives, which, you know, sadly is not true. They drink, they, they smoke pot, but some of them could handle it. Some of them didn't have an inclination like Isaac did clearly towards addiction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, he, he couldn't just, you know, do a little bit. And, uh, I mean, in high school, I don't think it was anything more than smoking pot and drinking. Mm-hmm. Not that that's nothing, but, it, you know, a lot of, uh, sadly, I mean, it's really like the norm and it's a, the way a lot of them socialize. Mm-hmm. And so that, yeah, I, I definitely saw signs of like the beginning of, of a of decline, like in his junior and senior year of high school. But I didn't really, honestly didn't see it as really being an issue yet at mm-hmm. that point, not until he went to college. Mm-hmm. And when did you realize that he did have an addiction problem? Was that when he was in college or out of college? When he was in college. His, his in first college. year. Yeah, his first year. I mean, you know, he was in a fraternity mm-hmm. his first semester, which which I find appalling because I think it shouldn't be allowed anywhere because, you know, kids are just getting acclimated to being in school and, you know, he, he couldn't even focus on school because he was in this fraternity and the culture in the fraternity was heavy drinking and, and, and doing drugs. And so that was really, that was really the beginning of a real decline for Isaac. And, um, he came home, um, after the second semester and, uh, you know, I, I mean, that's, I mean, during the year I already saw there was a problem when I went up there to visit and he wasn't doing well in school. And so, yeah, I mean, his, his first year of college was, was not great. And he was, he used to tell me stories. I mean, he was, you know, telling me stories about other kids, I put it in quotation, mm-hmm. you know, who were doing, uh, you know, who were, you know, doing opiates and, and things like that. But, you know, I, I realized afterwards and he was talking about himself but mm-hmm. he was talking about all these other kids that need his help mm-hmm. um and then he um i think when he it was when he was in his sophomore year he was actually he was home he had come home and um he was in was in my apartment i happened to have been away um couple of hours away, drive away. And uh, he was alone in our apartment with a friend. And uh, thank God I had a friend who was coming in from Florida and she was going to be staying with me. And so she needed to get into the apartment. And she was, you know, the door was locked, but she was smart enough to ask the doorman to let her in because she knew she should get in. And she found Isaac, um, you know, on the sofa, aspirating, starting to, you know, turning blue. And, um, you know, she called 911 and uh, took him to the hospital. And, you know, his organs were failing. And he was, 
you know, another another few minutes, and he would have been he would have been gone. And mm. she, she was really, she was really my angel. She, mm. you know, thank God she was smart enough to to get in there, and you know, and and he was in the hospital for about five days, and that was the first time we got him into treatment. And, uh, you know, he claimed that was the first time he'd ever tried it. You know, it was, I think it was Percocet. Or I think that's what it was. I don't remember exactly. And he said that was really the first time, um, you know, and uh, he went to treatment and told this treatment center was uh, 30 days or 28 days. And he needed to go back to school. It was in the summer. He was going back to school. That's what it was. And he told them he needed to get back to school. So they actually let him leave a couple of days early. And after just like 26 days of treatment, they actually allowed him to go back to his fraternity. Oh, boy. Mm. I mean, it was, you know, at the time, I mean... You know what we like? If I like you say, if I knew then what I know now, mm. I mean, I would never have allowed that to happen. But they said he's not really an addict. You know, he's got some issues, but he'll be fine. Mm. Yeah, he should go see a therapist there. And you know, it was really insane when I think back on it. And three days after he went back to school, he called me up, cowering like under his covers, you know, saying, I got to get out of here. Mm. And, uh, you know, he had relapsed sort of immediately, um, which was no surprise because you go back into to the same culture that you were in before, that's, that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so, that, so that was, you know, that was a nightmare. And he came back to New York and then he went into an outpatient program and, he was really trying to, you know, to work the steps and ended up going back to school and then um, relapsed again. And then, you know, it was it was a couple of years um, of, you know, back and forth. He'd gone to a couple of treatment centers and um, I found him again. He had an overdose, but I found him come close to it and got him to go back to treatment. And then the last time when he, uh, when he passed away was, um, uh, it was in 2014 and he had been gone to check himself into a relapse program. Um, seemed to be doing really well, came home, was living in sober living in New York city, came back and lived in my apartment with us got a job, was like in the best place, the best shape I've ever seen him in. He was, we just got him his own apartment. He was planning on moving out. I mean, things were just like, seemed to be like going his way, you know, honestly, never, never better. And Mm. he had said to me, I'm never going to use again, mom, because I know how quickly I can go to that dark place and I never want to go there again. And uh, it happened so fast. I mean, like your head would spin. Mm-hmm. It just, it, it, it days, literally days. He went, you know, he went back to to that place, and uh, you know, I um, there, there was. Well, I can't. I can go back and say, yeah, I think there were a million things I could have done, but who, you never know. I mean, I just had no clue that he, you know, was really using to the level that he was using because obviously, well, I mean, not obviously, but 
an addict, when they go back to using again, they're not going to get high from, you know, one dose. They're going to need the same dosage of what they were taking when they were getting high before. And their body's just not used to it, you know. So Isaac was, you know, it, it, it just escalated very, very quickly. And, and uh, I found him. It was one morning I was actually going to work out. He had not been feeling well the night before. And to sleep early, you know, and uh, when I, you know, passed by his room in the morning, I just heard a very strange sound. His breathing was very strange. And I went into his room and I found him unconscious. And, and uh, you know, he ended up uh, in a coma for about six weeks. Mm. And, uh, I mean, that was... That was it, you know. I mean, it was really, he was really gone when I found him that morning. But yeah. uh, I mean, he, what an what an emotional roller coaster. Um, oh God! Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. That's yeah. Exactly, you know. And it's just like you hear a lot of stories like that of people saying, you know, he was doing so well, mm-hmm. or you know, he looked great, or you know, he'd been clean for this amount of time, and and. Um, yeah, it was it was it was a shock. Yeah. I mean, of course, the shock, you know. But um, you know, we we had this. You know, the doctors gave us like literally like a one percent chance that he was ever going to come out of it, and mm. uh, so we had to we had to try, and uh, so we had six weeks of absolute torture. Mm. You know, being in a hospital every day, and just you know, hoping and praying he would wake up, and doing crazy things like. But I thought it was crazy, like, you know, he had, like, a healing crystal in his hand. Like, I put it in his hand and, you know, because you know, someone sent it to me. And I was like, you know, I'll try anything. You know, books under his pillow. I had rabbis, you know, calling and giving these blessings. I was like, you know what? If people say miracles do happen, mm-hmm. and yeah. you, you, can, you can hope. But yeah. then it gets so lucky. I mean, we've learned so much about these addictions now and how, uh, especially the opioids, uh, how they change the brain chemistry and why it's so difficult for people to quit. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like one of the things we learned when we went to, uh, you know, family week, which I did a couple of times at different treatment centers, was that when you're talking to the addict when they're in the throes of their addiction, you're not even speaking to them. You know, I remember we did this activity where we were like, we had to speak to, it was a, you know, something like a doll almost, because it's like you were speaking to the addiction. You're not speaking to your child anymore. That is not your child. Mm. You know, and when Isaac was actually in the hospital, you know, that first, that first day, um, which I can't even, literally can't pass by that hospital. My husband always takes a different route. I can't even look at that place. It's mm. such a such a trigger for me. Um, most hospitals are. But um, when we took him to the hospital, I, took, I had a cell phone. And I was able to unlock it. I figured out his password. I started listening to messages and reading his text messages. And I was like, that is not my son. Mm. I lived with him. 
And I'm reading these messages and I'm like, it was like the devil had taken over his brain. Mm. It was crazy. You know, it was just crazy. And I'm like, I saw him. I was looking at him. And, you know, he seemed to be normal. And yet what he was, the what he was, what his brain was doing, what the addiction was doing to him. He was reaching out to people looking for drugs. And he had friends. I can't even blame these people. They were like, Isaac, I thought you don't do that anymore. And he's like, nah, just this one time. I can do it just this one time. I'm okay. Mm -hmm. And he was selling his stuff to get money for drugs. He was doing whatever he could, you know, and, and lying. And, and just like, it, it was just like this other person. It wasn't, it wasn't him anymore. And it was, you know, I sat there literally like at his bedside. I was so angry, mm. so angry. I was like screaming at him the first day, like, why would you do this? You know? And like thinking that this was him, you know, that did this. And then like, you know, realizing that it, it wasn't what he wanted. It wasn't, it wasn't in intentional. He just couldn't, couldn't help himself. He couldn't his brain himself. was yeah. his brain was hijacked. Yeah. Oh, wow. So did you did you feel along the way? I mean, you talked about the paternity, but did you feel that peer pressure played a role in any of this? Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. I mean, without a doubt, when he was in, like, was he when he was in this fraternity? Yeah, hundred percent peer pressure. It wasn't like they knew he was in treatment. They knew he had just come back. Did anybody, you know, say to him, you know what, Isaac, I'm here for you. You know, um, I'll hang with you. We'll do something else. We'll do something sober. You know, we won't just, you know, sit here and get high in front of you all day. Right. You know, no, they were all encouraging him. Ah, you can do it just once. Big deal. You know, it's not going to hurt you. And, hmm. you know, I, I would say at the end, it wasn't peer pressure. But getting him into, you know, drug use and all along, it was definitely, it was peer pressure and it was not just peer pressure. It was just like society and the culture today is just, it, it's changed now. I mean, Isaac's going to be five years in January since he passed away, which I can't even mm -hmm. like wrap my head around that because it feels like he's still coming home. But, um, the, um, Today, there's more discussion about people, you know, about, you know, opioids mm -hmm. and about addiction and about recovery. There's more discussion. There are concerts and, and you know, walks and marches and, and just conversation even in, in government about it. Five years ago, it, it wasn't like that. Right. There was so much shame. Yeah. And, you know, you couldn't talk about it. And there wasn't that much information about it. Um, you know, and... You know, I, I just feel like even today it might have been easier for Isaac, you know, because there would be more opportunities. There was no opportunity for him to find a way to socialize, you know, without doing drugs and, and drinking. You well, know, so, it was just... I mean, certainly, Eve, you founded one of those organizations that would have given Isaac a safe place, right? Big Vision. So tell us how you came up with the idea and, and when you launched it. Right. So... When when Isaac passed away, you know we're traditional Jews, and so we do a, you know seven days of mourning called the Shiva. So um, I 
sort of, I guess I, I, at that point, you know, I, everybody that came and paid a shiva call, I knew I had to do something. You know, I didn't know at that point what I was going to do. But every person that came and paid a, a shiva call that said to me, you know, I'm here for you, Eve. If you need any help, you know, you can, you can call, you know, you can count on me. And there were people who came who had lost children, others who were just friends of mine, let's say from, I used to go to an Al-Anon meeting and they were my friends from Al-Anon and they were a great support for me. And I told everybody that came, I'm going to do something. I don't know what, but I'm going to do something. And when I would go to sleep at night, I would write down the names of all these people who said they would be there for me and they would help. And I never in my life had done anything like that. I've always been very charitable. I've always helped other people. I've never asked people to do anything for me. And a couple of weeks later, very shortly, maybe two weeks later, I, I woke up and I said to my husband, I said, I have my big idea. And he looked at me like I was crazy because I'm, I've been in a family business for, you know, 20, going, going on 30 years. And I don't really need a big idea, um, but I, he, you know, I needed, I, he, I said, you know, I want to do something, you know, in Isaac's memory, I want to, you know, I want to do something to make meaning out of his life and his, his passing. And so I just said, I said, I want to open this clubhouse. I want to open, you know, I, I know Isaac, one of his many struggles, but one of his biggest struggles was really finding a way to live a sober life. You know, because all of his friends got high. And, you know, that was his that was his network. That was his social life. And as it is for so many, for most people, I mean, not just young adults, not you know, just kids. Everybody. I mean, you know, wherever you go, whatever party you go to, what's the first thing you're asked when you walk into the room? What would you like to drink? Exactly. You know, yes. it's just like the norm. You go to whatever someone's house or you know any any function. Um, and so that really spoke to me is that him, you know, he loved to exercise. So exercise for him was his way of staying sober when he was able to stay sober. It wasn't enough to sustain him. I mean, he would go to play basketball at nine o'clock at night, you know, all the times when he would be socializing, he would go, he would you know, do boot camp, he would do everything, run the stairs in our building, like, he would, you know, that really worked for him. So, one of the things I wanted to do was open kind of a clubhouse, but also, like, a place where there would be, you know, a great gym, basketball courts, because that was his passion, ways for, you know, these young adults to, to you know, find out what their passions are, maybe train to become, you know, personal trainers or nutritionists, or any kind of exercise instructor. And um, that was kind of my idea, open this clubhouse where we can, you know, a sober, a sober clubhouse. And so I decided to, you know, I didn't need a lot of money for, to do that, obviously. And I had no clue what I was doing. And we just decided to start doing sober activities. It started out the, the Actually, the original concept was a basketball tournament. And we met with somebody who runs this basketball tournament every year to help us arrange the basketball tournament. And that was kind of kind of be the thing to start. And he came up with the name Big Vision because 
the Isaac's initials, he was Isaac Goldberg Volkmar, so he was IGV, uh, so the name Big Vision incorporates his, his initials. initials. So some of this, this friend of ours came up with the name, and we were like, brilliant, love it, that's it. We never even thought again about giving it another name. And so it started out, you know, doing the, we were going to do a basketball tournament. And then uh, I said, you know what, let's just do sober activities. Let's just start, you know. And we, um, I called a meeting in January 2015, one year to the day that Isaac had died. Mm-hmm. Called a meeting in my apartment. I invited every one of those people that said they would help me out. And about 50 people showed up. And... We spoke. I spoke about what my what my dream was, and Isaac's best friend Max, who himself is in recovery now five years, no more. He's probably in recovery six or seven years. Anyway, Max got up and spoke, and he was really he helped me create Big Vision. I mean, he was really the I, the sort of the guiding force of telling me what what he thought would work because he's a young adult in recovery, which is what our audience is, and so got together, we created a bunch of committees and decided we were just, we were going to do this and, you know, formed the, the 501c3 and then just started doing sober activities. And uh, the first, I think the very first one I did was go-karting, indoor go-karting, because I have a friend who owns um, RPM Raceway, which is... Uh, indoor go-karting, and she said to me, part of her give back when she started this company was, you know, to help, you know, organizations. And she said, I always wanted to do something for you when Isaac passed away, but I never knew what to do. She goes, this is what I'm going to do for you. Mm. So she does, she does, we do it a couple of times a year. And we just, I reached out to all the sober houses in New York City. And um, that's just where we started. I invited them all to come. We created like a flyer. I, you know, hired a young girl to help me out. And uh, I think the very first activity, we had like 40 people show up. We went to the bus, went there, you know, spoke about, you know, Big Vision, what our plan was, and everybody had a great time. And so it began. (laughs) And so besides the go-karts, what other sorts of activities have you planned for young people? So we've done, uh, we do... um, we do trapeze school, we do rock climbing, we do knitting classes, we do theater workshop, we do, every year we do a big basketball event, we've done Barry's boot camp, we've done soul, you know, spinning, uh, flywheel, um, indoor cycling, um, I, uh, I, many, we, there, there are many others that, 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 that gives you just an example. Yeah, that's just incredible. <laughs> we do bowling, we do hikes, we've done ski trips, we do ice skating. Like, you name it, you do it. Laser tag. Like, we, we ask them, like, what would you like, you know? Well, laser tag? Okay, we do laser tag. So why not, you know? We, we, we book it, we get, you know, can bring a certain amount to people, and and we always, we always, we always fill up, you know, the, the, the more active it is, except funny enough, like the really active ones, like go-karting, everybody loves, mm-hmm. um, laser tag, everybody loves, knitting has become very popular, so um, it, it's amazing, I started knitting because my mom, I know how to knit, mm-hmm. my mom taught me how to knit when I was a kid, 
and I she makes these hooded baby blankets. Every time someone has a baby, my mom makes these hooded baby blankets. Mm. So my initial idea was, we'll teach people how to knit and we'll donate these, or not donate them, we'll sell them and raise money for Big Vision. Mm-hmm. So I was a little bit ambitious because you have to learn how to knit a very basic, you know, something before you can do a blanket. Right. So, but regardless, you know, it's just become like a very popular event. We do it once a month and we get male, female, they, 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 they love it, but both of them we can get, you know, sometimes we have six, seven people, sometimes we have 15. Mm-hmm. We have a fabulous instructor, uh, this woman, Lori Kimmel-Steele, who, who does it for us, and she's, she's incredible and patient and really teaches them mm-hmm. like, the benefits of knitting. You know, mm-hmm. talked a lot about it, and it's, it's cathartic. I mean, you, you know, at a certain point, like once people learn how to knit, and it takes doesn't take long. She teaches them in a couple of minutes, mm-hmm. and then the room just goes quiet. You know, and, and it's like everybody's just focused on their knitting, and you know, then they go back whether it's over living, wherever they are, they come back and tell us stories. They're on the train, they're knitting, they're and flying, they're knitting. You know, it's just like it's it's amazing, and they all make they start out making something for themselves because Lori believes. Before you give someone a gift, do something for yourself, ah. you know. So she teaches them to make a very simple knitted bracelet, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so that's become kind of a, a regular activity. I never imagined that it would become so popular, but it's, uh, that's it's great. So, uh, I mean, Eve, having a safe space where young people can come together is important, but you obviously can't fill up all the hours of the day. So do you have outreach? Do you keep in touch with the young people that uh, come regularly to your group? Yes, we do. So, so right now we pretty much do one activity a week. Okay. Um, you know, so like I said, we do knitting once a month and then we do, you know, and some of the activities we'll do, like for instance, this month we're doing this walk, which is not a specific, like it, we're, we're part of a much bigger walk that Shatterproof is doing. Mm-hmm. So we like, you know, but we get a group of people to go. And so, you know, so we, we don't care if it's an activity that is promoting recovery, a sober activity, we will, you know, do it with somebody else and we'll promote other sober activity mm-hmm. around New York City because, you know, it's not just about, there's no ego here. It's not just about us. We just want to help people live a sober lifestyle. So they, they could probably fill up their week with all the, maybe not their, their week, but a, a lot of days with all these different sober events that are going on around New York City. But, you know, our, our, we do keep in touch with them. We, we, every time we, um, we have an event, we create a flyer, we send it out to everybody, we text them, we email them. We also send it to all the recovery houses, the sober houses in and around New York City, the outpatient uh, programs, um, and they'll post it. There's a place in New York City that uh, called Center for Motivation and Change, which is a great place, and they post all of our activities. So if you're sitting in the waiting room or you're in your therapist's office, you'll see the the flyer there. You know, so we, you know, certain treatment centers when they're um, when their clients leave and they're coming to New York City, they'll give them one of our postcards mm-hmm. so they know about us. So, you know, so we try and stay in touch with them. We're very active on social media so they can follow us and we, you know, 
tell about tell them about our events and, and we post you know inspirational messages on a regular basis and um, you know our real goal is to build this clubhouse so we've been very challenged my husband and I have been looking for quite a while now and New York City not only is it crazy expensive mm. um, but the stigma is real it's so real and we're, we come up against it all the time where we find the space and we have to be honest with them about who our who is going to be coming to these events and they reject us you know not outright you know they come up with other reasons but mm-hmm. you know they don't want us they don't want us there because they, you know, we tell them these are people in recovery. These right. are people who are looking to better their lives. They're working on themselves. They care about their health, you know, um, and they all they can all they can conjure up in their mind is the image of an addict on the yeah. street with a needle in their arm. Oh wow! And so we end up, you know, not we ended up like just not being able to find a space. Mm. Um, you know, once in a while we. You know, we'll get, well, very often we'll get um, a broker and they'll say, we've approved it for your use. And once we, you know, one time we even met with the owner and once we were meeting with the owner, we're like, oh, this is great. You know, she's gonna, she knows what we're all about. And she's, and once we started talking, she was, you know, very compassionate. I'm sorry for your loss, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and then the next, and we, we were paying her price. We were like, we're done, we're good. It's a fabulous space. We're so excited. And the next day we hear back, uh, there were insurance issues. And we were like, what insurance issue? What does that mean? Hmm. We have insurance. Like, what are you talking about? You want to rent it to a gallery? Then you have insurance issues. They're going to have parties with alcohol and people can right. get crazy. We're, we're like the opposite. Right. No oh, drugs, no alcohol. Like, what, you know, and they're just so afraid that our tenants upstairs are, are not going to be happy knowing that this is here. We're not a treatment center. We're not, this is not a methadone clinic, you know. Right. It's like, we're just a space where young adults can come and, and hang out, be sober, and, and, and knit. And <laughs> knit, know? yes. Like, it really sounds <laughs> very threatening, Eve. Right, I mean, they're, they're, exactly. They're not living there. It's a a space for them to come, uh, you know, just to hang out, right? I mean... Yeah, it's like a community space, center, Like all. a community center, wow. wow. I mean, who would have thought, wow. Can yeah, you- so somebody said to me, just say it's health and wellness. And I said, I'm not going to do that. They're going to look up my the website, exactly. Big Vision, and they're going to know what it is. And I, I can't lie. I have to... And by the way, I don't want to have... There's enough stigma attached to it. Exactly. I don't need to invite them to come to a space and then the people in the building are going to be looking at them funny and complaining about them or calling the cops on them or who knows why, exactly. you know? I mean, it's, I don't it's, do it's so strange because, you know, we do hear so much about, you know, the stigma um, surrounding addiction, but one would think that when you are, you know, providing a service for young people to get together and stay sober that people would want to support that. You would think. You would think. Well, <laughs> you would think. Can you tell I'm us? Still, you know what? I'm hopeful that I will find that right. There's going to be that landlord out there that's going to be. I'm just. It's going to happen. Absolutely. I haven't lost hope. Yes. So, can you tell us about some of the young people that have been helped through Big Vision? Some of the feedback that you're getting from them. Sure. Um, I mean, I get 
what, what did we do recently? We did, oh, I know we do, um, this incredible, um, boat ride, like around Manhattan. It's a, a friend of mine who has a nonprofit. It's called the Impossible Dream. Mm-hmm. And she is in a wheelchair and she has a fully accessible catamaran that she takes out people with disabilities. She's, she's amazing. And so she does this when she comes to New York. It's in Florida. She, you know, because we're friends, she uh, takes us out on, on this boat. And it's funny because, like, Bacardi is one of their sponsors. It's on the outside of the boat. And normally when they have these events, you know, they have alcohol and, you know, right. whatever. It's, it's, it's a party, but, you know, we come on the boat and she makes sure there's, that's, there's no alcohol and we just do this sober boat ride. And it's like we do it at sunset and it's fabulous. I mean, it's, it's, it's dreamy. I can't even tell you it's it's really incredible an incredible trip because you know the, the craziness of the city is all around you and yeah. yet you're on this boat on the water on the hudson going around brooklyn and oh wow it's incredible and so just recently i mean there was this one girl who who came on the boat she um is living in this one of these therapeutic communities downtown manhattan and she just said to me with like i I couldn't have worded it better, you know. It's like she just came to me and she said, I have to tell you, she said, I can't remember the last time that I smiled and I had so much fun without without using, you know. Mm. She said, I've never laughed so much and just really enjoyed myself without any substances. And I was like, you know, that that's like, you're my poster child, <laughs> you know, that's, that's it, you know, and it's, that's what, what it's all about, and it's true because, you know, normally if you were like invited on a boat like that, there was some party. There would be there would be alcohol, you know, and yeah. even if alcohol is not your issue and it's opiates or it's something else, they, they, they're not they can't do use any. They're not drinking, you know what I'm saying? Maybe they're not. It's it's still a trigger, you know, and so you know that, and and then listen, we have. It's a mix. You know, sadly, there are times where, you know, we have someone who's coming regularly and then I don't see them and, you know, we find out they relapsed. Mm-hmm. I've had, you know, two people that came to our events. Moved, one moved back to Florida, one moved back to New Hampshire and um, both passed away, mm-hmm. you know, overdosed. And I got a call from the mother of this one girl who I adored who, 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 died of an overdose and the mother called me up I was like how would she even know who I am and she said Casey used to talk about you all the time Mm -hmm. and she said how much it helped her and she wanted to start a big vision here Mm -hmm. and this woman put us in her will so that when she passes away her money will will go to big vision oh my god you know yeah it was unbelievable I mean mean, and this poor woman so many lives it's unbelievable we try. Is it? I mean, we, go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say this: this poor woman lost two children to heroin overdoses. Oh, so, dear. you know, I mean, wow. there's always somebody worse off than you are. I will say that much. But so sad. Is it emotional for you at times, and and how do you handle that? Um, yes, it's emotional for me, but it's. I mean. One, the most emotional thing for me one time was um, 
And now in all these events, we probably had 50, 60 events at this point. We had one time where someone showed up under the influence. Mm. And we would go karting. And they pulled him off the track as they saw he was driving erratically. Mm. And I saw right away that he, he had been drinking. So I pulled him away. I took him outside, got him away from everybody. And I spent you know, about an hour with him, giving him coffee, talking to him. And that was the hardest thing for me because I felt like I was talking to Isaac, mm. you know, and that I was like, guys, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> that mm. someone else will do that. I can't, you know, it was just, that was too much for me. And, you know, but it's, I get, I get emotional, um, but it, it helps me so much because, you know, I feel like I'm doing something in Isaac's name and I, I, I know it. Like I always sort of picture Isaac being there with us at these events and I know he would have loved like hanging out with these kids and he'd be making them laugh because he was very he was very funny Isaac and, and they would have loved him and he would have he would have fit in perfectly and you know I it just I feel like I'm kind of continuing his his work because when Isaac you know at the end when Isaac passed away we had um, a group of kids from the last sober house he had lived in, they came and paid a shiver call together. And they they made it, it was just them, and it was like, for them, it was a meeting. Like, their counselor said, they need this, you know. And they all came, and they talked about Isaac, and so many of them said how much Isaac had helped them, you know, keep, you know, stay on a good track. Mm-hmm. Couldn't help himself, but he always was looking to help other people. So I feel like, you know, he's looking over my shoulder, and, 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 you know, helping us. And I think he would have been really proud. And I think he would have, I think he, it, it would have been a great thing for him. So I somehow, you know, whatever, I, I get emotional. I'm able to, I'm able to, I, I get emotional a lot, you know, privately also. That's, that's just the, the way, the way I, the way I'm built, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, whatever. I'm not as, I don't show it on the outside so much. Well, Eve, I, I'm sure that Isaac would, Isaac would be so proud of you and uh, such an amazing thing that you're doing in, in the midst of this crisis, which uh, still is ongoing, and there are still so many people who can benefit, so many young people who can benefit from uh, coming to your events and, and you know being encouraged by uh, the other people there. Uh, any, uh, I, I know you've probably been approached by people in other cities and towns around uh, the country uh, wanting to know how they can set up a big, big vision. Have you had many inquiries? Oh, I've had, I've, I've had people call me ask saying they want to, yeah, mm-hmm. in many places I've had that, you know, and I pretty much, I pretty much tell them do what I did, <laughs> you know, very simple, right. just create, you know, create some, Sober, sober activities and reach out to, you know, who, whoever you can and start, you know, start talking about it. And, you know, even um, at AA meetings, Al-Anon meetings, you know, whatever it is, um, just, you know, starting to get the word out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is definitely more, I'm seeing, you know, more people who are starting, you know, to, to do this all, all over the country because it's, you know, it's so needed. I mean, unfortunately, we're not going to change the culture. Right. You know, but 
we we have to create safe places for people to go, and we have to. I mean, it would be nice to be able to change the culture so that not everything, you know, every what makes me crazy, like every sporting event, yes. you know, every yes. commercial, whatever, everything. It's all about beer, and it's all about drinking and partying, and, and you know, you you just see it everywhere, and it's like I always think about. Isaac, you know, I just always think, would Isaac be comfortable coming here? Mm. Would this be, you know, could he come to my, you know, birthday party, let's say, or whatever it is, you know, it's, and I, the challenges are, you know, I remember trying just to go out to dinner with Isaac one night and it took us an hour of walking till we found a restaurant that, you know, didn't have a big bar scene when he mm. felt comfortable. This is when he was early in his recovery. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I, I would like to, you know, change the culture a little bit, just make as many people aware that, you know what, don't say to that person next to you, why aren't you drinking? Oh, just have one. You can have one. You know, you never know what that person's story is. Exactly. You just, you don't know. So, you know what, you want to drink, that's fine. But, you know, it's, it, there's always this pressure on people and I see it because I don't, I don't have an issue, but I stopped, I don't drink anymore. I stopped drinking ever since I started Big Vision. It's just become like, I want to know what it feels like. Mm -hmm. And I got it. I have to be honest. I feel so much better not, you know, going to a party or going anywhere and not drinking and being fully aware of what's going on, being present waking up the next morning, remember everything, not having that disgusting feeling of, oh, I drank too much last night. And it's it just, there's something beautiful about that, of always being present. Yeah. You know, and that's really what it's about. Yeah, it's like we, sure we take drugs, we, we drink so that we don't feel and so that we, we you know, can escape. And it's like, it, but we need to be more present and that that's really... That's just a big part of it. Right. Well, you changing the culture usually involves taking one step at a time, and you've made a big step with Big Vision. So thank you so much for talking with us today. And uh, we will put links uh, uh, at the end of the podcast. Uh, The uh, website is uh, Big Vision NYC. Is that the the website? Yes. So it's people can go vision. there, sign up, get your uh, in- invitations to your events, and keep up uh, on what you're doing. Donate, doing whatever they can to do to you know to help this effort along. So, thank you again. Um, I'm Charlene Gianetti, editor of Woman Around Town, and we've been speaking with Eve Goldberg from Big Vision. Thank you so much. By the way, it's bigvision.nyc. Just yeah. want to say that. Okay. Bigvision.nyc. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you so much, Charlene. Okay. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care.